Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. It takes a pandemic. Okay, you fill in the rest. For instance, it takes a pandemic for me to finally clean out my desk. Right, um, it takes a pandemic to start reading that pile of New Yorkers. Uh, it takes a pandemic for me to finally learn to fake. Well, for audiences of live performance, it takes a pandemic to cherish our actors and musicians. With our great jazz venues and theaters closed, live performance has stopped. But actors and musicians continue to create. They have to. It's who they are. For this Hunker Down podcast, I talk with these artists who perform for a living about how social distancing is affecting their work now and when this is all over. About their dedication to the art of live performance. That was the beginning notes of America the Beautiful, played by the students of the Curtis Institute of Music, hunkered down in their individual rooms, and conducted by Robert Kahn, who dedicated the piece to all the healthcare workers risking their lives to save us. Robert Kahn is a Dutch conductor and the 2019 Conducting Fellow at the Curtis Institute of Music in Philadelphia. Familiar with both operatic and symphonic works, Robert Kahn was the assistant conductor for both the Juilliard Opera and Mann's Opera. He has served as cover conductor with the Buffalo Philharmonic and the Fort Worth Symphony. He is also a clarinetist and composer and has performed at Carnegie Hall and the Amsterdam Concertgebouw. So thank, thank you for joining me. I was so impressed by what you had done with the Curtis School of Music students that uh, I would like to play it at the end of this podcast, if that's all right with you. Yeah, of course. Okay, great. You uh, are where right now? Right now I'm in Philadelphia at my apartment. And that's where Kurt, the Curtis Music Institute is also. Are, are you, right. are you uh, still working there? No, no. The school is completely closed. Uh, the right. students are, are home, like all around the world, uh, right. back in their you know, parental home, not, not, their, not their temporary home as right. students. So yeah, no, it's completely, completely closed. No activities. But when when the school is open and working, you you have a, you still have a position there. Yes, yes, it's called a fellowship, and we okay. It's me and one other person, second year and first year, and together we share responsibilities. What what are those responsibilities? It varies. So we're both conducting fellows. So what it means is that the school is essentially one orchestra. It's slightly bigger than that, but it's essentially one orchestra. Mm-hmm. One hundred sixty people in the mm-hmm. school. Uh, but that includes singers and pianists and composers, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And essentially, we are sort of the assistant conductor for the orchestra. So we prepare the orchestra in rehearsals before the guest conductors come. Or in some concerts, we get to conduct a piece. Mm-hmm. 
with the operas, we serve as the assistant conductor. So it's, yeah, it's it's a little bit varied, but essentially we're like the assistant conductor for the orchestra. Right, right. And this is a position that you hold for a while. Uh, uh, it's two years. It's a two-year position. Okay, right. And you and you uh, received this in 2019, and so you'll you'll be with them till 2021. Right. Right. And uh, hopefully we'll be back open by the fall, so you get to do your work because you really can't do your work. Right. Yeah. It's tricky. This I mean, it's kind of weird that way because you, you know, we don't have an instrument. We can only do our job in front of you know when we have musicians to conduct. Right. So it's it, yeah, it's tricky that way. So how do you, how, I mean, you've got a whole summer in front of you without conducting. How do you prepare for the time when you will conduct? Yeah, it's, it's, it's tricky. Well, one thing that's, that's at least a good thing is that even during a regular season, uh, a conductor would spend most of his time, you know, studying scores more than actually conducting. So I still have that going for me. I have more time than usual for that. So I'm spending a lot of time studying scores that hopefully I'll get to conduct at the end of the summer, but if not, it's still worth studying repertoire. Right. Um, but it's definitely tricky. I mean, I'm, I only have so much experience behind me that I'm a little worried what's going to happen if I don't get to conduct for like five, six months, what's, what that's going to do to my, if I get rusty or not. But, right. Uh, yeah. but I guess, I guess time will tell. That's, yeah. Because I imagine the studying includes, I'm, I'm, I'm imagining what a conductor does getting ready to conduct. I've, I've, I have no idea. And I'd like to talk more about that. But my, imag my imagination is like, you've got the score in front of you and you may, I don't know, play Leonard Bernstein playing Elgar's, you know, variations. And it's mm -hmm. like you conduct it as, as he plays it or is it just in your head with the score? Yeah, the actual physical part of conducting doesn't really happen until I'm actually in front of the orchestra. Ah. There's very little physical, actually nothing really. Yeah. The idea is that once you've really studied the score and made your decisions about how it should go with the tempo and the phrasing and all of that, right. that and of course the character of the music, that the, the gestures, the physicality kind of flows out of that. So really a lot of, most of the time is spent at the desk going through the score in detail from a, you know, a large perspective and in detailed perspective, essentially just getting it all in your head and then eventually coming up with an interpretation, which should come out of, you know, reading about the composer, reading about the era, the style, and the, of course the piece itself in every uh, aspect. And that, that interpretation, is it something that you write down? Uh, how do you, you know, remember this, these was my thoughts? Yeah, it's definitely a lot of it I do write down in the score. Um, Sometimes even to such a point that I feel it's almost like a personal thing. If people look at my score, I almost feel that they're intruding a little bit. <laughs> it's, uh -huh. it's like, a, it's, I mean, some things are very technical, like my tempo for a piece, I eventually decide and put it down, the dynamics, phrasing, where a phrase should go, maybe a little arrow. But there's also a part that I write down sometimes to remind myself what a piece means to me. You know, if it's, if, if I imagine a sunset or if I imagine something, you know, a heavenly something like, a, you know, gates opening or something very depictive that I wouldn't per se tell other people about, but I write it down so I know, or I remember what it's, what, what it means to me. And I think that will inform uh, how I would conduct it. Right. And those initial thoughts as, as you're preparing for it, then are, as you are with the orchestra, you then remember what it is you wrote and the feelings that you had and I imagine those feelings change as you work with the orchestra. Right. Sometimes it does. Yeah, definitely. Right. Let's go back. I kind of jumped ahead a little bit. You're from the Netherlands. 
Uh, when did you get to the U.S.? Uh, after high school, so 18. At, at 18. And you went right into studying music. Yes, that was actually the reason for me initially to go to the United States. I wanted to study music, but I also wanted to study science, physics, actually. Right. Um, and in Holland, it's hard to combine those two because music is really at conservatories and science is at universities. But in America, I could combine those two. So that's initially why I came. And I've, uh, I've stayed ever since. And what, what, what's the connection between uh, conducting an orchestra and uh, studying physics? Yeah, is it's it seems so different, but... There's definitely some, in a strange way, I think there are connections. Um, of course, physics is very much, in a way, analytical. You you observe things, you try to make connections between things that on the surface may not be connected at all, you know, like, you know, energy and mass or something like that, mm -hmm. or, or or other other things, time and space, stuff like that. That seems so different, but there's actually a, a connection. And I guess in conducting, it's it's in a way the same thing. We, we try to analyze, you know, a, a symphony that, gets very complex but in a way it's all connected in some kind of structure uh, so i do think part of my brain that likes physics is the same part that likes that part of analytical score study stuff like yeah that. i mean you say things that are invisible i mean there are forces that are invisible that are kind of forcing us to hunker down right now right. Um, and there's certainly a physical aspect to that uh, let's um your parents are still living in holland uh, sort of. They, my, um, they lived in Holland for a long time, but my father recently uh, moved to New York City to do, uh, as he is a doctor, and he now works at uh, Mount Sinai Hospital in oh. New York City. We still have the house in Holland, so my mother is sometimes in Holland, sometimes in New York. So it's a bit of both, but it's nice to have them on this side of the pond. Do you have an idea of what's going on with the pandemic in Holland at this time? Is it hit it really hard or not? A little bit. It seems like they were, they were ahead of ahead of the US. So they, they peaked a couple of weeks ago, I right. think about. So they're definitely, they're definitely very much on their way down, even more than here. The hospitals are not overcrowded anymore. Uh, the emergency rooms are not, you know, overflowing anymore. So. All right. So they're, they're, they're on the downswing, but they are hung, they are isolated socially, uh, yeah. socially yeah. separated uh, distance. Okay. One of the um, television shows that we have really enjoyed in the past is Mozart in the Jungle. Are, are you familiar with it? Yeah, 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 I watched the, I may watch everything, certainly the first two seasons. I don't know how many. Oh, you got, you got, you got to watch the, the rest of it. I just spoke with John Miller, who played Dee Dee, the timpanist uh, mm. in, in the orchestra. How real is their depiction of how an orchestra, symphonic orchestra works from your own experience of how a symphonic orchestra works? Did you get a sense that was real or was it totally fantastic? I, it's been such a while since I saw it, but I do remember being thinking that the, the drama in the show was was a little bit um, maybe exaggerated from my experience. Mm -hmm. But yeah, in terms of how it's run, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not quite sure. I remember just being a little bit, you know, um, remembering the eccentricities of the conductor, which is, I think, has some truth. But it was, of course, exaggerated a little bit in the, in the show. Right, conductors. I mean, conductors that you've known. What are they like? You seem like a very centered calm person i mean i see conductors as being very self-centered and very egotistical and you don't seem like that at all i guess they could be all different kinds of things yeah totally i think i think conductors you know of the past the kind of authoritarian ones do create a little bit of a stereotype but one of the my mentor right now at curtis is yannick nazetsaga who's the conductor at the philadelphia orchestra and the metropolitan opera in new york and 
you know, he's my mentor. So of course I, I try to learn from him, but he's also, he's been my example for a while. He is a, he's somebody who's kind of, you know, everybody calls him Yannick by his first name. He sort of tries to get away from this stereotype, which I think is indicative of the new generation of conductors. Uh, a lot of my colleagues, I think also are trying to be less distant from the orchestra, less, um, less authoritarian, which doesn't work so much anymore nowadays anyway. And just much more approachable. I think that's sort of the new, the new way. And certainly that's the way how I like, how, how I like it. How, how did you decide to become a conductor? What, what was the inspiration? It was very Because you were a clarinetist originally. Yes, that's right. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, there's all these conductors that have these great stories about they once heard this piece and then they decided. But for me, it's very gradual. I played a lot of, as a clarinetist, I played an orchestra for a long time, also as a, as a, as a kid. And I think gradually, um, when I got older, I started thinking, I started, you know, looking at scores and kind of, you know, not really studying them because I didn't have the skills, but just kind of looking at them, listening to recordings. And the more I did that, the more I, I liked the aspect, because as a clarinetist, you play your one part and it's very limited to your part and you play it and you try to play it as well as you can. But as a conductor, you have to know everything about the piece, everything about the orchestra, all the instruments, and you get to make these decisions, interpretive decisions. And that's the part that I, that I like. And specifically, not just making the decisions, but trying to convince the orchestra of your decision and getting them along with you. Not in a way of you have to do this because I tell you, but, but trying to inspire them to, do, to see it the way that you think it should be done. And I think that's a, that's a, great, that's a great job, I think. Yeah. In, in theater, there is a uh, position called the dramaturg that kind of looks at all the stuff you said, but also the history, which you've mentioned, right. uh, how it's been done before in, in order to inspire you. But you are the dramaturg and the director. You don't have right. anyone. Yeah. yeah. So you're doing all that studying and all the background looking and considering all of the different directions that it could go. That's, that, that's you. Right, right. So you need to convince the individual orchestra members to take on your view that sounds like you're a psychologist in Very some much, ways. Yeah. So can, can we talk about that? Is there, well, one, is there a, a difference between the um, personality of a clarinetist as opposed to an oboe player, as opposed to a timpanist, as opposed to a piano yes. player, a violin player? Are, do you see differences in their personalities or is everyone just their own person? No, there are, I, the first time I played in a symphony orchestra was... Uh, when I was 16, I played in a wind band for a while, but symphony didn't happen until 16. It was the youth orchestra, the national youth orchestra of the Netherlands. And that's when I realized these kind of stereotypes that you heard, you do really see them. I have to say, you know, to be politically correct, of course, they're stereotypes and it's not always true. But it it does seem that the brass is usually um, the most, you know, the most... Uh, yeah, like, I mean, and, and I talk about a lot. And I mean, if you are very shy... If you are, if you don't like to be in the spotlight, you almost cannot play the trumpet because you know you are. You will always be heard almost every note, and percussion is a little bit the same, and the woodwinds are a little bit less like that, but still quite soloistic because they they do play solos. And then the strings are are usually more, you know, a little bit more. Um, I don't know, like I don't want to say obedient, but more um, in line. Yeah, a little bit. Good soldiers. Yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, would, would, would you want your uh, players to know that you look at them this way, or do they already know this already? 
I, I, I think, I think there's nothing new here, but okay. uh, I mean, I don't, you know, I don't respect anybody less for it. It's all about what they bring. Right. So, I, I mean, mean, if they, if they bring, if, um, you know, the violinist, the uh, lead violinist shows you something that you hadn't heard before and yet it, it wasn't quite what you wanted, do you then alter how you think the piece is going to be done or should be done? Sometimes. I mean, I, I do like to encourage people to, to, to bring their own ideas because if, if everybody plays sort of blank and waits for the conductor to, to, to shape it, mm-hmm. I mean, you don't have time for that. You can't do shape, you know, 90 people in three or four rehearsals. So I definitely like when people bring their own ideas and musicality. And then over the course of a few rehearsals, you want to get all of those ideas sort of into one uh, concept. This one. sounds this very much, I'm, I'm a theater person, sounds very much like a director in a theater in the sense you come in with a concept and yes, then you right. try to convince right. the actors to do it, but you don't want them to be laissez-faire about it. You want them to be engaged yes. in that concept. And then yeah, it, it yeah. kind of changes as you as you move forward if you're a good director. Right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That, that, that's great. This all requires collaboration. Everything mm-hmm. we've been talking about, and you um, you collaborate on new music uh, that I, I read, um, and you have yes. works that you work on, uh, and you work with composers yes. who who are doing music, and this all has to be done not just over the phone, right? Right. You you need to get together with instruments and players and composers and try stuff out. Yes or no? No, no, definitely. Very much, yeah. Right. So how do you do that when, when we're in this situation now? Is it possible? Yeah, it's very difficult. I mean, for now, definitely not. I mean, you know, with there's no way to bring an orchestra together except which we'll I guess we'll talk about later with this with these with these videos where everybody plays their own thing and you and you line it up. But I mean a a real collaboration just can't happen for now and it's it's really the question. The tricky thing is, of course, orchestras are so big that even when 100 people can get together, you can maybe get an orchestra together, but no audience. It's, it's, you really need to be able to get to a point in society where you can have 1,000 people in a room so you can finally give concerts again. So let's talk about that. What is the impact of the audience on the orchestra? I mean, are I, you aware of the audience when you're playing? When oh, you're definitely. conducting? Yeah, definitely. Um, because you're turned think, away yeah. from them. You're not facing them. Right. Yeah. It's weird. You're the only one not facing them, but I think except when the audience is behind the orchestra sometimes, but no, it's, it's very strange, but I definitely think there's a, there's a huge impact. I mean, I think for orchestras, you can, you can tell they, they, there's a level of, of excitement and a little bit of nervousness that usually translates, uh, especially with Curtis musicians into even a level above their usual playing. And it becomes a very special uh, special thing. I, I just uh, did one of these hunker downs with Rolf Schulte, the violinist, and he was, you know, was asking kind of the same thing, the difference between what does an audience do for you? And he was saying it's like when you're playing a difficult piece or any piece as a soloist, you, you're like on a tightrope. Uh, you can't stop. You can't. You have to keep going right. and, uh, and, and pick yourself up if something doesn't happen. So, I mean, is it part of this is like when you're rehearsing, you tap, 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 and you start mm-hmm. over again? Uh, and the let's start back here. Here you can't stop. You just yes. you have to keep going. Definitely, that's a big. I mean, when I did my first big concert, that's that's a feeling I had very strongly. Is that every rehearsal you're you were conducting and you want to, you know, convey all your ideas, 
but there's always that voice in your head, listen to what they're doing and making decisions. Should I stop? Should I rehearse? Or should I keep going and get back to it once we're done running the piece? So you're always making these mental notes and only in rehearsal, because even in dress rehearsal, I'm still thinking of what I can do differently in the concert. But once you're playing the concert, everything that's behind you is just behind you. You, you can always be in the moment and you don't have to worry about if a mistake happened or if it's only about what, you know, the next second and the next second. So you can, it's the only time you can really be in the moment. Right. You're a young conductor. You have many, many years in front of you of doing this thing called conducting a symphony orchestra, but you must have had experiences in your, in your career so far where everything was clicking. It just was all coming together. What, what, what does that feel like? Can you think of a moment? In which that yeah, happened. I, I mean, probably the, that moment would be coming coming to Curtis for the uh, for the first time, because um, that's been a sort of a dream of mine for a long time. I've known about the school for a long time, and that was probably the first time coming to Curtis and connecting that orchestra was probably that feeling of 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 just how how special it is to be able to to conduct a group, you know, ninety people that are each of them are so talented and so gifted and 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 especially since they're young they're so passionate about everything i mean every you know when you do a beethoven symphony for a lot of them it's the first beethoven symphony and the first Brahms symphony and i mean that is i mean it's really every time i'm in front of them i i kind of have that feeling of of whoa this is very very special first firsts are really important that first time that first experience i mean in a lot of different aspects of life it's that first moment of experience and then first the first moment experience something that you love so deeply must be so special yes i'm just i'm just wondering it's like you're up there i mean i've seen leonard bernstein since i'm a kid and he's conducting and you know all the great conductors doing their thing and what it must feel like to have 90 people there and you give the downbeat and it all starts to happen at once i mean is it a control thing is it are you working with them are you all kind of one engine and you're just part of that engine? Yeah, it's, I think, I think at its best, it's, even though it looks very much a one-way thing, like a conductor gives a beat and they respond, I think at its best, when it's going well, it really does feel like something you're doing together. That, and sometimes, you know, when things don't go well, I might not feel that way, but when things are going well, it really, you know, some teachers have told me this, you have to hold the sound and sounds, it sounds a little bit, um, you know, like up in the air, but it, 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 it does give that feeling that you're holding the sound and you're moving it with them. And it's a very much a collaborative, it's not just you show something and they do it, but you respond to them. And it's this kind of communal uh, moment of, of, of creating, creating the music. Yeah. Let's talk about you creating this music now for the emergency workers. It's so gorgeous. Um, how, how does that work? All of the players and how many are there they're all hunkered down at home and yet they're all totally together how do you do that yeah so what we use for this is i just gave them a a metronome marking which is essentially like a click track Mm -hmm. and they all played played their part under under that click track and then and then i put them all put them all together so each of them has played didn't hear a single other person uh, until they saw the whole thing because sometimes it's done where there's like a bass kind of a sound, right? But this wasn't. All they they had the click, they had the music in front of them, 
Mm-hmm. They had the click track. Did they have some directions from you as to the feeling or the... A little bit. So I, I created the, the arrangement specifically for this. So that gave me the opportunity to make the parts. And in the parts, I did try and give as many instructions as I could. So dynamics and phrasing and bowings mm-hmm. and sometimes a word here and there like noble or something like that, mm-hmm. or broadly, something like that. So mm-hmm. little bit, little bits of that. And I tried to arrange it in such a way that, you know, you couldn't slow down or speed up if you do this click track. So I did try to do the end sort of in, in double time, I guess you would call it, so mm-hmm. that it's people can stick with the metronome, but it still sounds like it's it's not like all of a sudden stopping. Right. It had a, it had a very, very clean sound to it. You could hear every instrument... Uh, which I don't always get in a uh, concert hall. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's like I have to really, to parse the instruments, I've got to really listen. That could be my ear uh, rather than anything else. But um, it was, uh, and yet it had that kind of a spiritual aspect to it. And it's hard not to think of it that way since yeah. we're in this situation, how you how you introduce it and all. Yeah, yeah. Did did it come out pretty much the way you thought it would? Yeah, yeah, I'm... I'm... I'm I'm definitely happy with with you know the way they played it and and, and the way the way it came together. I'm okay. very happy. Now, when you get back together and you get these, how many were there that played in it? Uh, I think it was twenty in total. Okay, all right. When you get together and you say, "Let's try it now," here we're sitting in the same room, uh, and we're going to now play uh, "America the Beautiful," which you may do. What what's going to be different? Yeah, that's. I mean, I've definitely thought of that, and I even thought of maybe creating a a bigger arrangement for you know full orchestra, but with the same concept of starting with you know the trumpet and then more people joining in. But in um, a live, but in a live situation. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, mean, I, I, think I, I could see I would be staged. It's like you start with the video, right, and then you come in with your orchestra. I, I don't mm-hmm. know. Yeah. But anyway. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> No, but yeah, it, it, it will be interesting. I mean, I think what's special about this one is, and I was thinking of actually putting it in the video, but that was going to end up being too too messy uh, for the for the for the video of it. But that they were all in such different places. You know, some people were playing in Japan, some people in Canada, some wow. people in America. It was Asia. It was really all over the world, which is, I think, kind of special. Yeah, I mean, the other thing that occurs to me is every room is different, and they all were in different rooms, and they all right. seem to be playing at about the same time of day because the lighting was the same, because we get to see it in the visual. And if anyone wants to look it up, all you have to look up is Curtis, Curtis Student's uh, America the Beautiful, and, and it'll, it'll come up on, on, uh, on Google. Congratulations on that. I have one more thing I'd like to ask you about, and that is about the choices that you've made. You've made a suggestion of four choices to kind of help get us through the COVID-19 period here. Yeah, so I guess we'll start in order. The, the Mozart is... So the motet is the Ave Verum Corpus, um, which is a motet for choir, strings, and an organ. And it's a piece I've liked for a long time. It's not very well known. Uh, so I thought this was a nice opportunity to show people who may, may not have heard this music. It's one of his last works, actually. He wrote it in the last few months of his life. It's, you know, a Christian text and it's religious. But I think what's beautiful about this music is that it's it feels so deeply religious. But because it's music, it doesn't matter if you associate with that religion or another religion or no religion. It just has a feeling, I think, of 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 something very something heavenly and something intimate and yet heavenly and, and, and eternal.
Yeah, the Bach, the um, it's the slow movement of the fifth keyboard concerto. This is a piece I once heard as an encore. The first time I heard it was when I was a, a, a kid, and I heard it as an encore to a to a concerto concert, and a little bit similar to the Mozart, but in a different way. It has an incredible feeling of of of, of kind of an eternal. Um, something very comforting. It's, it's, it almost couldn't be simpler. It's just one little melody in the right hand and the strings are playing pizzicato chords. And it has this feeling that Bach can, can often evoke, which is this very comforting kind of eternal, very much removed from all the little uh, everyday squabbles that we have and, and something that, that will, always, will always remain and always be there even you know, if we're not here anymore. It's from the second symphony, the fourth movement. One of my favorite symphonies in general, so I, I was happy to find something short to, to put in the fourth movement. Um, there's an alto voice who is singing about, um, about humanity lying in great pain and uh, he's singing about wanting to be in heaven. Uh, of course, with Mahler, you get this kind of, you often get this kind of more, um, kind of a little bit darker side, this more suffering. But this aspect of heaven, which you can very much hear right at the beginning, she sings, and then you have this this brass chorale. Uh, it's very evoking this this idea of eventually getting to a happier place. Great choice, great choice. And finally, the Elgar piece. Yeah, the Elgar is, so this is Nimrod, which is a variation of the Enigma variations um, for orchestra. The Elgar, there's, you know, you can talk a lot about, about what the variations mean and all of that, but I think the music itself, it's often used actually for commemorations or for, um, uh, you know, things like that, um, for, for tragic events. but. I think the music itself just just really the music speaks for itself. It's it's very, um, very kind of kind of soothing and and um, and comforting. I kind of got from that. It's like 
we're going to get over this and we're going to come out of it. Exactly. You yeah, know, there, there, there is an end to this thing that, right. we're, that yeah. we're dealing with right now. Thank you, uh, Robert Kahn. Thank you so much. It's been great talking with you. I would love to meet you when you're in New York sometime and the bars are open. I want to buy you a beer and, and get to know you face to face. This has been uh, very special for me. Thank you very much. Thank you, Alan. Thank you. You've been listening to the Hunker Down Podcast, conversations with actors and musicians about their lives on stage during a pandemic. If you have any questions or suggestions, please contact us at UpperWestSideRadio at gmail.com. That's one word, UpperWestSideRadio at gmail.com. <laughs>